Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, our passage for today is Matthew 13, verses 51 to 52. On Friday, May 7th, 1858, in Beardstown, Illinois, a trial began that would soon become one of the most famous trials in American history. The defendant, a man by the name of William Armstrong, also known as Duff Armstrong, the defendant's lawyer, an up-and-coming country lawyer by the name of Abraham Lincoln. The charge, murder. A few months before the trial, Duff Armstrong had been involved in a fight, and of all places, after a religious camp meeting. Uh, Churches were sparse in the region at the time, and so people would gather for these camp meetings instead. And outside of these meetings, there were often tents set up to sell concessions to all the people who came into these meetings as well. Duff had attended one of these meetings, and and, uh, as was not uncommon for men to do at this time, he he decided to do a little drinking afterward. Long story short, Duff got drunk that night, and along with another man, ended up getting into a physical altercation with a man by the name of James Metzger. Metzger received two serious blows during this altercation, one to the back of the head and one to his eye. Afterwards, he went home, and a few days later, he died from his wounds. Duff and his accomplice were both charged with murder, and Lincoln, who was an old friend of Duff's father, Jack, offered to defend Duff for free. By the time of Duff's trial, his accomplice had already been convicted on the strength of eyewitness testimony from uh, several different witnesses. But when it came time for Duff to be tried, it was different. One of the linchpins in the prosecution's case against Duff was the eyewitness testimony of a man named Charles Allen, who had claimed to be much closer to the fight than all the other eyewitnesses and had clearly seen the blows that took Metzger down. When Lincoln cross-examined Allen, he asked him how he could have so clearly seen the individuals in this fight when he was so far away, perhaps as far as 150 feet. And it was dark that night. It, it took the, the murder took place about 11 o'clock at night. How could he see this murder take place? By the light of the moon, Allen answered. Lincoln grabbed onto this statement and pressed Allen further. Where was the moon when the fight had occurred? Was he sure there was enough light to see the man? Allen explained on several different, question, uh, several different occasions under Lincoln's questioning that the moon had been directly overhead at the time of the attack, therefore providing more than sufficient light for him to identify the witnesses or the, the, the assailants. It was at this point in the trial that Lincoln produced an almanac And turning to the night of that event, he demonstrated to the jury that at the time of the attack, the moon could not have been overhead because it was only an hour away from setting. Now, whether or not that fact actually demonstrated there was not enough light for Alan to have clearly seen the attack, it was still sufficient to sow doubt into the minds of the jury, and Duff Armstrong was acquitted on the first ballot. The case would go down in American history as the Almanac case. And it soon became part of the lore that shaped the public's perception of Lincoln as a man of both extraordinary wit and down-to-earth common-sense logic. 
It's often the small details of a story that will either corroborate or disprove a person's retelling of events. The problem with lies, of course, is that it's hard to keep them consistent. The lie is fiction. It's made up. And this means that the longer a lie goes on, the more details of the story that are told, the more likely it is that the liar will make a mistake and introduce some piece of fiction into the story that couldn't possibly be true in light of all the other facts that they've shared. And quite often, this inconsistency occurs in the little details. It's in the the details that the liar doesn't ever take the time to really consider if they match the rest of the story. And this is especially true with multiple eyewitnesses, by the way. I learned this lesson very quickly when I served as the vice principal of a junior high school. Disputes would sometimes occur among the students, or accusations would be made by one student against another, and I'd be tasked with finding out the truth of the matter. And it was often hard to get down to the truth of the matter because it wasn't as simple as having eyewitnesses to what took place. If you know junior high students, you know they typically run in cliques. So very often, it's not as simple as just asking a bunch of students to tell you what they saw because very often they've corroborated with their friends to match their story with each other. And you end up with one group of students saying one thing happened and another group of students saying another thing happened. It turns into this case of he said, she said, with each group telling a consistently different story than another. Over time, what I learned was that in those situations, the best way to discover who was telling me the truth was to listen to the little details. You can't listen to the big details, the the ones that the other person thinks you're interested in, because they're smart enough to corroborate those details with their friends. You listen to the small details, the insignificant ones, the ones that a person doesn't ever think you would, would ever be interested in, because those are the ones that they never think to corroborate. I'd listen to two groups of students, And inevitably, I'd find that one group was consistent in the small details of the account, and the other wasn't. I'd begin asking one or two students about the inconsistency in the story on one of these small details, and before long, I'd usually have a confession about what really happened. Again, in determining the truthfulness of a story's events, it's often the little details that can end up mattering the most. While I served as the vice principal of this junior high, I taught a class called Life of Christ, which was this class designed to retell and explain the life uh, of Jesus' ministry, the events of his ministry chronologically. Of course, this required the use of all four gospel writers. We'd set their accounts uh, side by side and explore what they had to say. And this sometimes meant that the events of one of the gospels uh, had to be reordered to match the sequence of events described in the other gospel accounts, because not all the gospel writers recorded their events chronologically. They didn't record them in order. Well, it was often during this course that I was stunned by the level of consistency that occurred in these stories in the little details. There are these moments in the gospels where if you corroborate one author's account of Jesus' life, against the others. You discover that they corroborate each other's stories in ways that the authors couldn't have possibly anticipated. Their stories check out in ways that the original authors couldn't have anticipated. 
And whenever I came across one of these instances, I often had this fresh realization that, wait a second, this, this actually happened. Like Jesus really said and did all these things. And then quite often, I'd get these goosebumps as I'd think to myself once again with a greater clarity and certainty than I had had before. Jesus is the Son of God. Like He's, gonna, he's going to do everything that He said He would do. It was as if I was getting to see Jesus perform the miracles and declare His teaching with the same sort of clarity and certainty that those who witnessed it firsthand had. There was a realness to Jesus that is honestly sometimes hard to grasp when we merely read these accounts 2,000 years later. It was like I was actually there and was getting to witness these events unfold firsthand with my own eyes. And quite simply, it was amazing. It was an experience I never anticipated when I agreed to teach this class, and it was part of what made Life of Christ my favorite class to teach, easily my favorite class to teach. Now, I say all this, I go through all this, because today's passage is is one of those kinds of passages. This passage is one that when you examine it and set it in context, you realize that there is an unquestioned truthfulness to what Matthew is saying here. In short, as I, as I looked at this passage over the past couple of weeks and compared it with the other gospel writers, I started to get those goosebumps again as I realized that Matthew was doing it again. He was proving to me again that everything that he was telling me that Jesus said and did actually happened. And he was doing it with these little unintentional details and the details that he's not trying to defend or prove. But perhaps more importantly, this, this corroboration, not only did that, it not only made me go, whoa, like, the, like Jesus did and said all this stuff, but it also gave me a fresh insight into this passage that allowed me to understand the meaning of Jesus' words here in a way that I had actually never understood before. The passage, once again, is Matthew 13, verses 51 to 52, and it serves as the conclusion to this collection of parables that Matthew records for us in Matthew 13. Throughout Matthew 11 and 12, there is this ongoing debate occurring about Jesus' identity, His messianic credentials. There was a a great amount of authority behind what Jesus was doing. There was this remarkable display of signs and wonders that accompanied His teaching ministry, all of which seemed to authenticate Jesus' message that He had been sent to establish the kingdom of heaven. And yet, Jesus said and did a lot of things that didn't look like what the people expected of the Messiah. So the people are wrestling over Jesus' identity. They're trying to figure out what to do with this miracle worker and His kingdom message. And the debate climaxes in Matthew 12 when the religious leaders blaspheme the Holy Spirit, saying that Jesus performed His miracles not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. And this signals that Israel isn't going to accept Jesus' message. They've hardened their hearts too much. They will not repent. And this then leads Jesus to begin speaking in parables in Matthew 13. This is to say that rather than speaking plainly and clearly as Jesus had been doing throughout the early portions of His ministry, He instead begins to speak in these sort of cryptic stories. He tells these stories, many of which are hard to interpret, and some of which are hard to understand or accept, even when they can be interpreted. This is different than what he had done earlier in his ministry. The disciples notice this shift, and in Matthew 13, 10-17, they ask Jesus why he's doing this. Why has he begun to teach the people in parables about the kingdom of heaven? 
Jesus answers this question in verses 11 to 13 when he says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Essentially, Jesus says that the reason why he's speaking this way is because as demonstrated through things like the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Israel's heart has become hard. They have rejected his message. And so really in an act of judgment, he is refusing to give them any further truth. He's not going to give them any more knowledge about the kingdom when they have already rejected the knowledge that he has given them. So he's speaking to the disciples in parables. And the reason is because he wants to reveal these insights into the kingdom, these secrets of the kingdom, only to those who had accepted his message while at the same time hiding these same truths from others. That's what's happening here in the parables of Matthew 13. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's explaining truths about the kingdom, about this mystery of the kingdom, really. He's teaching them kingdom mysteries, but he's teaching them in a kind of code. Our passage for today comes at the conclusion of this section. These are Jesus' closing remarks on these parables. And Matthew writes this. Jesus says, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So Jesus closes this discussion of the parables by asking his disciples, have you understood all of this that I've been saying to you? And that's an an important question to ask because as receptive as the disciples were to Jesus' message, there were still moments in these parables when they had a hard time interpreting their meaning. On two different occasions, first after the parable of the sower, and then second after the parable of the weeds, they had to actually ask Jesus to interpret a parable for them because they didn't understand it. Even they didn't always grasp the meaning of Jesus' parables. And so as Jesus closes this section, before he moves on, he he double-checks and he asks his disciples, do you understand what I just told you? Are you following what I'm saying here? Does all of this... Makes sense to you? And the disciples say yes. So at the very least, they're basically tracking with Jesus at this point. Now, this isn't necessarily to say that they understood everything about the parables perfectly just yet. There were parts of the parables perhaps that were still difficult for them to comprehend on maybe a theological level or something like that, but meaning that maybe they didn't fully understand how all of what Jesus had taught them worked exactly. That might have become clearer later on in Jesus' ministry, but at the very least, they understood the meaning of what Jesus was saying. And presumably, they were able to accept it. They weren't rejecting what Jesus had to say. They understood it. They understood the meaning of it, and they were willing to accept it as truth, even if perhaps they didn't understand how all the theology behind it worked. In other words, the parables are working. Jesus then responds to their answer with one final parable, saying, Therefore, 
Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now, as we've seen with several of the parables in this section, this parable isn't too difficult to interpret at face value. Again, some of the parables were hard to interpret. For instance, Jesus had to actually explain the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds to the disciples. After the parable of the dragnet, Jesus likewise offers an explanation of the parable to his disciples. Other parables were less hard to interpret and more hard to understand or accept. The parables don't ask Jesus for an explanation of the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, for instance, because they required none. The parables clearly spoke of the slow and expansive growth of the kingdom. That would have been a message that was easy to interpret, but hard to accept for Jesus' audience, who both wanted and expected an immediate kingdom with immediate results. The parables of the treasure and the pearl of great value likewise needed no explanation. It was was obvious that they spoke of the surpassingly great value of the kingdom of heaven. There was a price that the disciple would have to pay to gain the kingdom of heaven. To be more specific, they had to be willing to forsake everything to enter into the kingdom, and yet the kingdom was still worth that cost. Again, that would have been a parable that was easy to interpret, but hard to accept. It would have been hard to understand what price there would be to pay in following God's victorious Messiah just as it would have been hard to accept the price for that kind of a commitment. So there are these two types of parables. There are those that are hard to interpret and those that are easy to interpret. And even with these latter parables, those that are easy to interpret, we have seen that there are these layers to the parables that give additional insight into the the meaning the deeper that you peer into them. The parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, for instance, speak not just of, not just of the slow and expansive growth of the kingdom, but of Gentile salvation in particular. Truth is, that was what would would have been really confounding about the parable more than anything else. It taught that the reason why judgment was going to happen slowly was because God was going to include all of the nations of the earth under this global domain of the kingdom. All the nations of the world were going to be included in the blessing of the kingdom. That would have been especially hard for many of these Israelites to accept. Even though the Old Testament predicted this, even though it made sense that judgment had to be slow in order for that prediction to be fulfilled, it was still difficult for many in Israel to accept this message. They wanted Gentile destruction, not Gentile salvation. Likewise, the parables of the treasure and the pearl spoke not only of the surpassing value of the kingdom, but of the price that had to be paid by all peoples to enter into it. It wasn't just the spiritually poor, it wasn't just the blatant sinner that had to leave their former life behind to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It was the spiritually rich as well. The so-called righteous, they too would have to leave an old way of life behind, completely trade in everything they own, so to speak, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, it was this the latter half of this message that would have been particularly hard to accept. The problem wasn't just that a person's life had to change. It was that, that the righteous were actually on the same footing as the unrighteous. They had to pay the same kind of price to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It wasn't just the tax collectors that had to repent, but the Pharisees too. 
that would have been an especially confounding message for these law-keeping, law-exalting Israelites to hear, even once they could perceive it. Why would a Pharisee have to repent? That would be hard to understand. Well, today's passage is very similar to these latter types of parables in that on the surface, they're easy to understand. This is an easy parable to understand, and yet there's this deeper layer to the parable that really opens up the full implications of the parable as well. On the surface, this parable is about what the disciples have gained due to their responsiveness to Jesus' message. Jesus says that every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. A scribe, of course, is a kind of biblical scholar. Technically, they were those who were responsible to make copies of the Old Testament in this time. There weren't printers or copiers, of course, in the ancient world. Everything was written by hand. All books were handwritten. Well, that meant when you have a book, as important as the Bible being used, as often as it was being used, this required a whole class of men to continually make copies of this text to replace the older versions as they were wearing out. That's what the scribes did. Well, as you can imagine, this meant that the scribes were incredibly well-versed in the Scriptures. I mean, they made their living by copying each and every letter of the Word of God, and so they knew what was in the text backwards and forwards. Practically speaking, this meant that they weren't just copyists. They were more than that. They were scholars. They were walking, talking Bibles. Biblically speaking, they constituted the most learned of all the Jews in the ancient world. The Pharisees may have been the most popular teachers of the law. They were the ones that could interpret and explain the law to the people. But the scribes, they were the ones who knew what was in the law. Whereas the Pharisees might have been the ancient equivalent to the modern day pastor, the scribes were your seminary Greek and Hebrew professors. They were the ones that the Pharisees would have leaned on when they wanted to know what the text actually said. Well, at the conclusion of this series of parables, Jesus says that a scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. That's not a hard parable to understand. If you recall from our discussion of the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value, wisdom, knowledge, this is often compared to treasure throughout the Old Testament. For example, David says that the precepts of God are to be desired above much fine gold in Psalm 19. Solomon likewise writes in Proverbs 3, 13-15, he says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. What Jesus is saying here is that the scribe, who is a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, a student of the kingdom of heaven, This is to say that the scribe who has accepted Jesus' message so that he has been able to hear and understand these parables that Jesus has just delivered. That scribe doesn't just have the kind of traditional Old Testament knowledge that would have been common to the Old Testament scribes at this time. That scribe has a whole wealth of additional knowledge on top of that old knowledge as well. 
He doesn't just have the Old Testament text. He now possesses the secrets of the kingdom of heaven as well in the form of these parables. Remember, the parables helped pull together these concepts in the Old Testament that were hard to understand. Like, how could there be a suffering Messiah, as the Old Testament predicted, and a victorious Messiah, as the Old Testament predicted? How could it be that the the Gentiles would be judged by the Messiah, and yet they were to be blessed in Abraham, and even to go up to Jerusalem to worship in the day of Messiah's reign? How did those concepts go together? The kingdom parables helped explain and clarify these issues. So the scribe who had accepted Jesus' message and received these messages would have been at a real advantage when it came to the proper understanding of the Scripture. That scribe was not only an expert in what the Old Testament had to say, but they were an expert in what it all meant because the kingdom of heaven had been explained to them by no less than the king himself. So that's the basic meaning of this parable. Just as the master of a household can bring out of his storehouse both new and old treasure, while despising neither the new nor the old, so also the scribe who receives Jesus' message is able to draw on both his existing knowledge of the Old Testament and this knowledge that he has received from Jesus in order to teach and explain the Scriptures. In other words, Jesus isn't saying that his disciples are a new kind of scribe, scribes of the kingdom of heaven or something like that. He's saying that the scribe who does come to the kingdom. And we know from passages like Matthew 8.19 that there were some scribes that were interested in following Jesus. Jesus is saying that these scribes have even more wealth to draw from than what they had before because of their receptiveness to Jesus' message and their ability to receive these parables. If I could put it this way, Jesus is saying that the Israelite that comes into the kingdom is both old money and new money. I don't know if you've ever heard those terms used before, old money and new money. They refer to two different kinds of wealthy people. Old money refers to families that have had money in their family for generations. At this point in history, this would be your Rockefellers or your Kennedys. These are families that are accustomed to being among the socially elite. They've grown up in it. The thin air of the upper class is the oxygen that they breathe. That's old money. New money refers to families who have suddenly come into money within a single generation. This would be your pro athlete, your run-of-the-mill tech mogul who sells a website for a billion dollars. It's your Jed Clampett. This is someone who suddenly finds themselves moving around in an entirely new social class with a whole different set of values and principles than the one that they grew up in. New money runs in the same social circles as old money, but they often have trouble fitting in. They're not used to the culture of the upper class. They don't really know how it works. This is what these terms old money and new money mean. Well, Jesus is saying that the believing Israelite is both old money and new money. They've been born into incredible riches. But because of what they've learned from Jesus, they're now even richer than they were before. That's the point of this parable. It's this on top of idea. Any student of the Old Testament is actually only going to be made richer in their understanding of the Scripture as a result of Jesus' teaching, not poorer. 
And this is actually very, a very important point that shouldn't be missed. Jesus was never intending to undo or annul or abolish the knowledge found in the Old Testament when he taught. If he ever said something new or perplexing, it wasn't because he was nullifying what was written before. It's because he was enhancing it. He was explaining it. He was clarifying it. He was tying it all together. So the Old Testament student who then comes to Jesus and accepts Jesus has the advantage of this enhanced understanding of the Old Testament. They don't have to throw away what they've learned before. It's still valuable. It's still treasure. But now they have this newer treasure on top of the old that enriches them even more than when they only had the old. That's the meaning of this parable at face value. It's not hard to understand. And yet when you dig into this parable, you discover that there's a a fuller meaning to understand in the details of this parable as well. I first realized this when I set this parable in its historical setting. If you recall, as I've preached through Matthew, I've often said that Matthew doesn't attempt to present things in chronological order. He doesn't try to present these events in Jesus' ministry in the same order in which they actually occurred. This gospel is less a cold scientific retelling of the life of Jesus and more a kind of sermon that's meant to explain the significance of his life. And this means that Matthew will regularly rearrange the events of Jesus' ministry in order to enhance their meaning. Matthew is not just telling us what Jesus said and did. He's explaining what it meant and why it mattered in his gospel. And he's doing this through the sequence of the material. He's carefully setting the context of what Jesus said and did in order to draw out the proper interpretation of those events. The meaning of Jesus' life. Not just what he did, but what it meant. Well, every week as I'm studying Matthew, one of the first things I do after I translate a verse is to set that verse back into its historical setting, so I can get a better idea of what Matthew would want to communicate through the rearrangement of this material. Again, if he's pulling an event way out of its historical setting and plopping it down into the middle of another sequence of events, then it's reasonable to conclude that he's doing that for a reason. I want to know what that reason is. Again, Matthew rearranged this material under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is providing an inspired interpretation of the life of Jesus. And that's what I want to present to you each week. And, and this means that what I, I want to know when Matthew is rearranging material so I can consider how the setting of the material is intended to shape its interpretation. So every week, right after I translate the passage I'm studying, I go and I place it in its historical setting, and then I compare that with Matthew's setting in order to better understand Matthew's purpose for the passage. I have a book called Harmony of the Gospels that does much of this work for me. It's actually the same book I used when I taught Life of Christ back in California. It harmonizes the gospel accounts and and sets the life of Jesus in chronological order. Well, I take that book and I flip over to the table of contents. I, I look up my passage and I look at what happened before and after that passage in Jesus' ministry. And if there are any parallel accounts, I flip to that page in that book in the book and it will show the parallel accounts of the passage right there on the same page side by side and of course then i'll compare my passage with the parallel accounts and see how they're alike and how they're different it's really a very useful tool by the way life of christ is the name of it if you have if you're wanting to buy a copy or something let me know i can 
tell you how to how to how to get one after the service. Anyways, I do this after week every 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 week. I check my passage with this historical setting. I compare it with Matthew Matthew's arrangement in order to understand how the the setting of the text might help me understand Matthew's interpretation of this event in Jesus' ministry. Well, this week I caught something really interesting I'd never seen before. Flip over to Mark chapter three. Matthew, again, doesn't present the life of Jesus in chronological order. Mark and Luke, on the other hand, with perhaps one or two exceptions, they do. They more or less retell the accounts of Jesus' life as they happened. With that in mind, look here in Mark 3. In Mark 3, 22 to 30, there is Mark's account of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' response. And then in verses 31 to 35, there is Jesus' declaration of his new spiritual ties, which immediately followed this encounter. We saw that in Matthew as well. Then in Mark 4, starting in verse 1 and continuing through verse 34, you have the kingdom parables. That's our Matthew 13. That's where we are today. So again, the sequence matches with Matthew. Then you have a few other events right after that, which Matthew actually placed before the kingdom parables. There's the calming of the storm as Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee with his disciples in Mark 4, uh, 35 to 41. Uh, Then there's the healing of the Gadarene demoniacs in this unclean section of Palestine on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in Mark 5, 1 to 20. After that, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee again where he heals the woman with the hemorrhage and raises Jairus' daughter from the dead in Mark 5, 21 to 43. You'll notice these are all events that Matthew placed back in Matthew 8 and 9. Then, look, you have Jesus return to Nazareth where he is rejected in Mark 6, uh, 1-6. That's our passage for next week. So according to Mark, there was this sequence of miracles that occurred between Jesus' preaching of the kingdom parables and his rejection in Nazareth. But otherwise... We're seeing the same order occur in in Matthew. There's the blasphemy of the Spirit, followed by the kingdom parables, followed by Jesus' rejection in Nazareth. Those events happen in that basic order. Now look at verse 7. What happens in Mark 6, verse 7? It says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and put on two tunics. Does this sound familiar to you? I mean, this is Matthew 10, isn't it? This is the commissioning for a Galilean mission that we saw in Matthew 10, right? The calling of the twelve. Now, this may not seem to be significant at first, but as I was looking back again at what Matthew recorded about this mission, I saw once again that Matthew introduced this mission right after another instance of the blasphemy of the Spirit, by the way, by saying this in Matthew 9, verses 36 to 38. Why don't you flip over there? Matthew 9, 36 to 38. Matthew says, When Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and to send out laborers into His harvest. Think about that statement one more time. And consider that Jesus said that historically. Historically. 
He said that after the kingdom parables. In other words, historically, it was after Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a sower who went out to sow seed. It was after Jesus compared the kingdom to a field of wheat sown with tares. It was after he compared it to a mustard seed that grows into the biggest of the plants in the garden that he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So you think that there might be a connection? between these two events, meaning, do you think that maybe the disciples had a clearer sense of what Jesus meant when he made that statement about the harvest being plentiful after hearing the kingdom parables? It would sure seem like it, wouldn't it? In the kingdom parables, Jesus repeatedly compares the kingdom to being like a sower, like a seed, like a field, and then right before he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It would seem as if the context of this harvest statement was the kingdom parables. It would seem that Jesus' meaning when he made this statement would have been very clear because of the kingdom parables when he delivered it. It was when I made this connection that I started to get goosebumps. This is, this is when I once again made this realization of, of, wait a minute, Jesus really said all this stuff. You see, Matthew only records the harvest statement. Only Matthew records this, and it's in Matthew 9. He's the only gospel writer that says that Jesus said this before he commissioned them for this mission. And, and that's really interesting because Matthew records this statement before its context. He does it before the setting that would have clarified its meaning. In other words, Matthew isn't trying to put that statement in the context of Matthew 13, and yet Mark and Luke show us that historically that's the context it would have been in, and it makes sense. Like a lot of sense. Their stories check out. Matthew says, so one time Jesus said this, and Mark and Luke actually corroborate that account in a way that Matthew never necessarily intended. He brings up the harvest statement out of context to serve one purpose, and then through their retelling of Jesus' life, Mark and Luke demonstrate that this was a logical statement for Jesus to make in light of everything he had said before. If I could put it this way, if I were interviewing the gospel writers in the principal's office, trying to figure out if they were telling me the truth by examining how their stories matched up, this is where I would have gone, okay, they're telling me the truth. That really happened. This is the point in the story where Lincoln pulls out the almanac Flips to the night, the murder takes place and goes, oh, wait, the moon actually was directly overhead. Your story checks out. I guess you're telling me the truth. Now, you're probably wondering to yourself, why? what does this have to do with the meaning of this parable? Why, how does this connection explain the fuller understanding of this last parable? And don't worry, I'm getting there. Just be patient. I know this is a long explanation, a long time to get into it. We're getting somewhere here. Hold on. Hopefully this will click for you in a moment, just as it did for me. As I made this connection with the harvest statement in Matthew 9 and the parables of Matthew 13, it got me wondering if there were any other connections between the kingdom parables and the commissioning that Jesus gives in Matthew 10. Matthew 13 preceded that commissioning historically. And it would seem that Jesus had the parables of Matthew 13 in mind when he delivered that commission. So is there any sort of connection between these two events? Well, as I flipped through Matthew one more time, I realized that the answer to that question was a resounding yes. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the whole discourse that we encountered back in Matthew 10 
is based off of the parables that Jesus delivers in Matthew 13. All of what Jesus says in Matthew 10 is directed by, shaped by, founded on what he says in Matthew 13. For example, look here, if you're still there in Matthew 10, look here, Jesus says in verses 5 to 7 that he doesn't want the disciples to go out to the Gentiles, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And why would he have to make this statement? Why would Jesus need to make that distinction? After all, it wasn't as if the the average Israelite was was eager to go out and proclaim the message of the kingdom to Gentiles. In fact, they probably wouldn't even perceive that they needed to do that because they believed that the kingdom meant judgment for the Gentiles. But in the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, Jesus had actually taught his disciples that that was a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. He taught them that the kingdom would be a global affair and it would extend out to the nations. So you can see, then, why he must make this distinction before he sends his disciples out on this Galilean mission. After the kingdom parables, the disciples would think that they're supposed to go to the Gentiles. In the parable of the sower, Jesus gave this illustration of a sower who cast the word of the kingdom on all these different kinds of soils which responded to this message with different degrees of receptiveness. Well, here in verses 9 to 14 to Matthew 10, Jesus explains how his disciples are to handle these different kinds of responses as they go about their mission. As a matter of fact, Jesus' whole reason for the parables, to give truth to those who will respond while at the same time taking the truth away from those who don't, that explains the instructions that Jesus gives in verses 11 to 14 to greet those who greet them and leave those who don't. To those who have, more shall be given. To those who do not, even what they have will be taken away. In the parable of the weeds, Jesus explained that there would be this period of time before the kingdom where the wicked would be allowed to coexist with the righteous. In the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value, he also explained that there was this tremendous cost that a person would have to pay if they were to acquire the riches of the kingdom. Well, Matthew 10, 16-25, Jesus explains that just as he was called Beelzebul by Israel's religious leaders, so also would his disciples be treated. And he instructs them in how they are to handle this kind of rejection and this intermediate period that would occur before the return of the Son of Man. Last week we saw that Jesus countered the hesitation that a person would experience as they weighed the cost of the kingdom with the parable of the dragnet, which was this warning about the pain that a person would experience in hell if they did not pay the price and suffer the cost of discipleship. I even said at the conclusion of this message that one of the reasons for this parable was for Jesus to encourage His disciples to persevere in their faith. Well, if you notice in verses 26 to 33, Jesus issues this warning again as He encourages His disciples to persevere while they endure the suffering they're about to endure on this mission. He even says in verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And once again, Jesus explained the cost of the kingdom of heaven in the parables of the treasure and the pearl, and he warned of the penalty that would be endured if a person didn't pay the price. And he discussed the difference in the the types of responses to the Gospels, which people genuinely receive the Gospel and which don't in the parable of the sower. Well, again, if you look in Matthew 10, starting in verse 32, Jesus begins to tell his disciples how they can tell whether or not they've made a convert on this mission. 
saying, anyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I'll also deny before my Father who is in heaven. He goes on to say, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. He even says here, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, that's, that's exactly the point of the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl. And it allows the disciples to discern the difference between the soil that has heard the word of the kingdom and accepted it and the soils that have merely heard of the word of the kingdom and, and, and recognized it without actually accepting it. The one who cannot confess Jesus for fear of persecution? Who is that, right? They're the one who, the one who will not take up their cross and follow Jesus? That's the rocky soil, isn't it? It's those who have heard the word and not accepted it. The one who cannot endure the rejection of family for Jesus' sake, the one who cannot lose his life for Jesus' sake, this is the thorny soil who hears the word of the kingdom and can agree with it generally, but who cannot accept it because the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out. Can you see this? This whole discourse here in Matthew 10 is shaped by what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 13. Jesus doesn't deliver this discourse in a vacuum. It's all based off of what he already told the disciples about the kingdom in Matthew 13. And again, this is really cool to see because because none of the gospel writers go out of their way to make this connection, and yet the connection is there. In other words, there's this incredible amount of consistency in the gospel accounts. Their stories match up even in the areas when you don't think they're they're looking, so to speak, and, and that's really cool to see. But perhaps more importantly than this, as it relates to our passage this morning, this connection between these passages helps us understand what Jesus is saying with this last parable. You see, this last parable is actually a kind of commissioning. That's the fuller meaning of this parable. Jesus isn't only telling his disciples that because they have understood these things, they therefore have even more treasure than they had before. He's also telling them that they have, listen, he's telling them that they have a responsibility to share this information with others. This is where the master of the house part of the parable comes in. The master of the house is a reference to the head of the entire household. This is the family patriarch. This is the one who is both in charge of and not only in charge of, but responsible for everyone under his charge. He is the head not only of his family, his wife and children, but also of everyone else who lives under his authority. If he has servants, for instance, he would be the head of those as well. This means that he not only had charge of those individuals, but he was also responsible to care and provide for them. That, of course, is where the treasure in the parable comes in. This master of the house brings forth treasure from his storehouse, both new and old. And the reason isn't just to show off his riches. He's bringing this treasure out of his storehouse in order to provide for those under his charge. He is bringing his wealth, his goods, his treasure in order to take care of the needs of those in his household. 
When Jesus is saying that the scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings forth out of his treasure both new and old, he's not only communicating that the scribe now has additional information on top of the old, he's saying that that scribe also, also has the responsibility to share this information with those in need. In other words, this information isn't only for the scribe's benefit, it's it's for the benefit of those who need it as well. The scribe has been given an additional knowledge, additional resources that they are to then share with those who are in need of it. And of course, this is exactly how this all plays out in Matthew 10. Jesus calls the disciples aside and he commands them to go out and preach his message to the crowds in Israel. They are to go go and take this message out to Israel to those who have ears to hear this message. And as as he gives this instruction about how they are to do this, it is shaped entirely, entirely by the kingdom parables that his disciples have learned in Matthew 13. So that is the fuller meaning that we discover when we scratch beneath the surface. This is a parable not only about the riches that the disciples would have received through this instruction, it's about their responsibility to to share those riches as well. Jesus asked the disciples, have you understood what I told you? And they say yes. And he says, good. Now understand that you have the responsibility to now share these truths with the rest of the members of my household as well. That's what this parable is. It's a kind of commissioning. This is the idea that is communicating. The disciples have been entrusted with a significant treasure in these parables. And now they need to be good stewards of this treasure by going and sharing it with fellow members of God's household. So how about you? Have you understood these parables? Are are you one of Jesus' disciples? If so, understand that you've been entrusted with a great treasure. And it's now your responsibility to share it with those who are in need. How are you going to do that? What are you going to do to proclaim these kingdom truths that you've learned over the past several weeks? You know, when we take what Jesus says here in Matthew 13 and compare it with what he says in Matthew 10, I think what I find to be most compelling is is just how much Jesus expected the truths contained in these parables to shape his disciples. Like if you look at the instructions that Jesus gives in Matthew 10, they explain not just what Jesus wanted his disciples to proclaim, they also explain how he wanted them to proclaim it as well. And that method, that technique, that was, that was shaped by the parables in Matthew 13. And this shows us just how much of an impact Jesus expected these parables to have on his disciples. I, you know, I think we're tempted to look at these parables and think that all that, all that they're doing is explaining theological truth. Jesus, Jesus calls these parables the, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, a lot of times we associate this word secret with, with gossip, right? Or, or something like that. That's what we think of when we think of secret. And so we tend to think of secrets as this, this kind of information, insider information that we're curious about, but which is only really there to entertain us. Secrets, we think, reveal stuff that we're interested in, but, but they don't necessarily affect our lives. They're just, they're just there for our pleasure. It's very tempting to see these parables as nothing more than that, as, as just secrets. 
They have these little nuggets of theological information that entertain us. That They satisfy our curiosity about the kingdom of heaven, but nothing more than that. And they're not intended to change our lives. They're just here to know. That's what we think. And what we see as we wrap up this last parable is that nothing could be further from the truth. When Jesus was delivering these parables, He wasn't just dispensing theological data for curiosity's sake. Quite the contrary. He was actually delivering a set of truths that was supposed to radically alter the very lives of His disciples. In other words, these kingdom parables aren't intending to reveal a a bunch of Isolated theology. Matthew 13 isn't just a bunch of detached doctrine. This is truth that Jesus shared with his disciples so that they could apply it to their lives. He means for them to live in light of the doctrine that he declares through these parables. If I could put it this way, you know what these parables are? They're they're a paradigm. These parables are a grid through which the disciples are supposed to see the world and govern what they do and how they interact with those around them. That's what you see in Matthew 10. These parables aren't just governing what the disciples say, but how they're supposed to say it. The parables define, direct, they guide their mission. They are as a whole a lens through which the disciples are to view the world. So as we finish this last parable, this summary parable, that builds this bridge between the parables and the rest of life, that proclaims to the disciples that Jesus wants these parables to be lived. The question that you really need to be asking yourself is not just, who am I going to share these parables with? But really, is my life shaped by these parables? Is my life shaped by the truth these parables have revealed? That's what Jesus intends. He wants His disciples to live in light of these kingdom truths. These parables are supposed to be not just heard, not even just proclaimed. These parables are supposed to be lived. So what do you think? Do you live these parables? Is your very life shaped by the truths that Jesus has revealed in Matthew 13? Do these parables guide and direct the way you live? Of course, there are a lot of different ways that that question can be answered and Tonight at 6 o'clock, we'll work a few of those answers out together. So if possible, I would encourage you to be here for that discussion as we we think about the implication of today's message together. What does it mean to to live in light of the kingdom parables? We'll discuss that tonight at 6 o'clock. Of course, I hope to see you there. But until then, let's close in a word of prayer. Let's pray.